I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the kick the centrifuge down the road edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Happy gardener in this lovely spring weather we're having in Washington. My hydrangea bushes are blooming. I have hydrangeas now. Wow, because, you know, I, I, I very seldom talk about my mother. On My, my mother has a almost pathological, <laughs> almost pathological distaste for hydrangeas. Is she really? Yeah, it's to the point that when my kids were little, they would antagonize her by walking up to her and saying, hydrangea. What does your mother have against these beautiful flowers? I don't know. She has, this is a woman. They're showy. They're very showy. But I have to say, they are a symbol of domesticity, certainly here in the D.C. area. Oh, yeah. So congratulations on having hydrangeas. Thank you. I get like a new star on my gay card. It's very very (laughs) exciting. Shane is nesting. I am nesting. Oh, it's so nice. It's really nice, you guys. You should come over. Um, I'm joined, as always, by my good friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis. Hello, Tamara. Traveler of the frozen tundra. Indeed. I uh, I left a brisk but spring-like Washington on Monday morning and arrived in a blizzard-like Ottawa, Canada. Oh, my God. So um, it's it, to many in Washington, it might not feel that warm right now, but boy, does it feel great to me. <laughs> yeah, I bet it does. Isn't like Ottawa like the, the Texas of Canada? Is it Ottawa? No, that's no, that's Alberta. 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 Ottawa Sorry, is Ottawa. the capital of Canada. Oh God, it's the Washington D.C. of Canada. Oh God, I'm going to get such t- hate tweets now. I got hate <laughs> tweeted by somebody about Las Vegas last week. I'm sorry, I was not saying all residents of Las Vegas are the problem. Tourists in Las Vegas are the problem. If you can't make fun of Las Vegas, what can you make fun of? Thank you. Ottawa, on the other hand, is just cute. Okay. It's cute. It's a cute capital. Uh, And also I'm joined by uh, my good friend Ben Wittes, who is approaching his black belt in Aikido. Yeah, I had my Aikido test uh, last week, or last weekend, uh, and uh, moving forward uh, in that. With your lethal weapons of your, your great guns. Uh, well, you know, Aikido is more about what you can do without great guns. Well, I meant um, like, you know, the guns as in your arms. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's what you, about what you can do without strength. Oh, really? As opposed to Taekwondo or, or some of is the other like martial arts. Jiu-jitsu? Uh, it's related. It's, um, it, it's, um, it's a Japanese grappling martial art, uh, that is, uh, all about what you can do without strength. Okay. All right, well, grapple away. (laughs) All right, so this week on the show, uh, the talks over Iran's nuclear program are hurtling towards some vague yet-to-be-defined conclusion. President Obama opens a new front in the cyber wars and a scene of Rashomon in Egypt. Plus, in our object lesson segment, wild tales and birthday cakes. So I'm going to open up with wordplay. Uh, Wordplay, my wordplay this week, is a blank sheet. Because that's basically what the Iran talks are right now. The deadline as we speak on a Thursday afternoon has been extended by a couple of days now, right? And might be extended indefinitely. Well, They've agreed to extend and keep talking. What's a deadline really mean anyway? Among friends. 
Among or friends. among enemies. Yes, yeah, that too. I mean, you know, as long as there's still something to talk about, we should talk. So what, okay, so what the hell are they talking about? First of all, like every reporter who's in Lausanne right now, hanging out at the Beau Rivage, which I guess is the most expensive hotel there, you know, buying $15 lattes and whatever, are getting nothing, right? And can I, can I just point out that there is no whinier crew in the world <laughs> that, I mean, you know, I don't think they're whining that much in the Syrian refugee camps as it's much as these reporters sitting in a nice hotel in Lausanne are whining about the pace of Iranian Well, twi- feel for them, okay? They've spent weeks reading up on centrifuges and gaseous uranium forms, and now they're sitting in a hotel lobby, and the only story they can file is on the fact that a member of the Iranian delegation was seen in public wearing jeans. Yeah, which is news. You know, news. you know, I'm sorry. My heart is not breaking for them. <laughs> <laughs> they are camped out in a nice hotel, <laughs> hanging out and drinking. <laughs> Just chill, guys. Lavrov was drinking. I mean, you know, clearly. So Why don't they invite Lavrov for a drink? If they were good reporters, they'd be in there. You know, I'm not saying that. They're probably all doing their jobs. But, you know, but so, 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 I mean, what, what are we, we're, we're re- trying to read in, obviously, to a closed box at this point. But it does seem that from the leaks that have come out, there are sticking points over numbers of centrifuges and over the research that Iran would be able to do on new generations of centrifuges, which is important because those centrifuges would be able to process uranium into weaponizable material much, much faster than the current infrastructure we think they have. So, I mean... So there's that sticking point. There is a sticking point on um, when and how restrictions on the Iranian program will end toward the the latter part of the lifespan of this agreement. In other words, will Iran get to a point where they can do whatever they want or will they remain under significant restrictions? Um, And there's a new sticking point because the Iranians have backed off their willingness to ship fissile material out of the country. And so... Basically, my take on it is everything is still up in the air, and I don't know why anyone would say that they're closer to an agreement now than they were three months ago. And is anyone? I think I'm going to punctuate each one of you, your all's comments with an annoying tweet from a reporter in Lausanne. <laughs> this is from Indira Lakshmanan. Uh, breaking hostage crisis, Lausanne enters eighth day, victims tortured <laughs> with sleep deprivation, lack of info, even chocolate fails to ease pain. A That's little, fabulous. A Good little bit her. punchy there in Lausanne, I think. So All right, so it's your turn, era. Shane. So which of these sort of sticking points could be a deal breaker? Or, or is there no deal breaker in this? And I mean, how well, should we that, be... Yeah, that's the question. I mean... If they've been arguing about such fundamental issues for this long, and even the approach of a, a, an apparent, um, although constructed, deadline did not serve to get them to agreement, why should we believe that another couple weeks or even another few months is going to make the difference? Either the will is there to close on these issues, or it's not. From at AP Diplo writer, P5 plus one negotiators realize it's only 1394 in Persian calendar. Extend Iran talks for 621 years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Shane. <laughs> this, is, this is to some degree these people trying to outdo each other, but that's, that's for, um, you know, so look, this is my kind of, I mean, I have, I guess, I feel like I'm always bringing the cynical take to this, but I'm going to give my cynical take on what's actually happening here. Wait, then. you're cynical? I know. I'm not too young to be cynical. Um, uh, the, the, the time completely plays into Iran's favor in this, right? 
So that we are there, we are trying to get some semblance of a deal so that we can come back and we can say we've achieved not necessarily peace in our time, I know that's a loaded phrase, but you know the idea that we need to come back with some deliverable. And for Iran, if it equals sanctions relief and some more concessions on their program and they get to keep some centrifuges, that's a big win for them, right? I mean, I've always sort of maintained that like Iran is not necessarily hell-bent on creating a nuclear weapon so much as it's always the prospect of a weapon out there that kind of keeps things, that, that tension alive that maybe benefits them. And then sort of with mixed in with that, I also feel like it's very difficult to describe or understand what's going on because there are so many, there are multiple power bases in Iran. You know, we have, you know, Rouhani and Zarif negotiating on one part. It's not at all clear to me that, that the supreme leader is backing them up on this or that the people who are in Switzerland will be able to sell a deal back in Tehran. Uh, or that, or that they even have the same long-term ambitions for Iran that the supreme leader and that the military does. I mean, it just feels like to me like different parties negotiating, but one party negotiating here, but not necessarily that the camp back home is completely on board. I mean, well, it's not as though we have complete unity of opinion in Washington on this issue right. either. But I guess what I would say is I think you're right that just about any deal. Um, will work reasonably well for Iran, certainly compared to the situation that they're in today. And we have to remember why they agreed to have these talks in the first place um, after years of uh, stymied negotiations was the increased pressure of sanctions. So to the extent that things drag on, um, the pressure that Iran feels over time is the sanctions pressure. They're losing money every day. They're unable basically to interact with the international economy in any meaningful way. And Rouhani was elected in part um, as a way for the Supreme Leader and the Iranian regime to relieve public pressure by having somebody there who was going to make things better, was going to reopen Iran to the world. And so that's really what they have to get out of an agreement, because I think you're right, they're going to do what they're going to do on the nuclear program as much as they can, regardless of circumstances. But, you know, given that, I find it, it, I find it interesting that the dynamic of the last few months has been all about this March 31st deadline or March 24th deadline or April 1st deadline, mm-hmm. um, which put all the pressure on the P5 plus one side to get to a deal. In fact, the longer the talks go on, the tougher it is for Iran, and time should be working on the side of the P5 plus one. But it's the fact that Congress intervened and threatened new sanctions in April if there wasn't a deal. That's what created this deadline. That's what made the time pressure work against the the P5 plus one in the negotiations. To my mind, it's really unfortunate. Well, I'll just leave with uh, Mike Duran's of the Hudson Institute's assessment of the press uh, from Twitter, at this stage, I suspect the press in Lausanne would vote to give Iran a fully built nuke if it would only mean they could all just go home. And and this is one of those moments where, you know, the media's framing of events is actually far more important than the events themselves. Don't you think, Shane? Oh, of course. Well, that's always the case. That's always the case. <laughs> Never um, forget that we're the story. <laughs> we are the story. We love to be the story. We say we don't. Um, all right, we, we will come back to this obviously in future episodes, but, um, but yeah, I think Tammy, you, you say a great point that it is about, it's about the economy, stupid. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, Ben, let's go to your wordplay. Um, President Obama, uh, issued an executive order this week, uh, that is actually probably not getting enough attention and is a very significant development in the government's efforts to combat 
cyber espionage, and cyber attacks. Tell us about it. Well, so, I mean, having made such a significant contribution to the last discussion, um, I, 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 I think there's, this is a really big deal, actually. So the president issued an executive order, um, and for some reason when we indict, you know, a bunch of people who we have no power over in China, uh, for hacking, this is a big, big news story. But this executive order, uh, it has not, at least that I've seen, been a particularly big news story, though I think it's probably the most significant policy development in cybersecurity in a long time. Um, so the executive order is entitled Blocking the Property of Certain Persons Engaging in Significant Malicious Cyber-Enabled Activities. And what certain persons means is not named individuals, as in, you know, blocking the assets of certain people. It's blo- it's announcing that anybody who meets certain criteria can have their assets blocked or will have their assets blocked by the Treasury Department under uh, the president's emergency powers. So the first interesting thing is that the president actually declared a national security emergency about cyber espionage. And he uh, ordered the blocking of property for anybody who does significant cyber damage to critical infrastructure from overseas, um, or who uses cyber to uh, uh, cause, quote, a significant misappropriation of funds or economic resources, trade secrets, personal identifiers, or financial information for commercial or competitive advantage or private financial gain. And then he adds... But wait, there's more. There's more. That it would also block property of those, quote, found to be responsible for or complicit in or to have engaged in the receipt or use for commercial competitive advantage or private financial gain by a commercial entity. Um, now, I think what what you take those together and what the executive order says is that the United States will freeze the assets of any any any, any foreign entity that is a doing cyber espionage or b benefiting commercially from cyber espionage and this is a uh i think really interesting broadside against the chinese companies that are be- benefiting from uh, the theft of U.S. and uh, U.S. trade secrets. Um, so wait, and it's, it's and saying it's, it'll uh, freeze? And it's bringing the non-cyber power, economic power right. of the United States to bear on the cyber problem, I think really for the first time. So basically the White House is saying, if you benefit from cyber espionage, no matter who does it on your behalf, we're going to freeze your assets. So you companies, Chinese or whoever... You, you have a choice. You can either play in the American marketplace or you can benefit from cyber espionage, but you can't do both. Is that the argument? That seems to be the argument. Um, and it seems to be... Now, what, of course, one question is how seriously the administration will go after it and how aggressively it will go after commercial entities. Um, and also, as, as Herb Lynn um, pointed out on Lawfare, uh, Herb is a noted cybersecurity specialist, what will the Chinese reaction to that be, uh, you know, in retaliation against U.S. firms? I mean, you could really imagine a 
trade war kind of coming out of this. So one question is how aggressive does Treasury and and the government become in you know freezing assets of notionally commercial ventures? Um, but it it does seem as a pure matter of both policy statement, we will go after the beneficiaries and we will deny them access to the U.S. market. Um, and as a raw statement of presidential power to do that, an assertion of presidential power to do that, strikes me as a very significant document. Interestingly, it is very brief. The, the entire executive order is three pages. Um, and that briefness reflects, I think, the simplicity of the document. There's not a whole lot of caveats in it. You know, there's not the kind of regulatory stuff that takes up a lot of pages. It just says, you know, we're coming for you. So I think to the question of how aggressive is the administration going to be, there's two ways to look at that based on sort of the data that we have now. <clears throat> One is that they intend not to be very aggressive. Now, the press conference that they, they did on this order yesterday, uh, it was uh, uh, Michael Daniel, uh, the chief of uh, White House Cybersecurity, and then we had uh, the, I think was the deputy director of OFAC from Treasury. Uh, and they kept emphasizing this is going to be, this is a narrow tool, it's a narrow tool. Well, it's clearly not a narrow tool. It's a, it's a blanket kind of <clears throat> tool. And they were really trying to, I think, emphasize this idea that it would only be used in these exceptional circumstances for significant significant damage to the economy, significant, significant, significant. But, I mean, as you point out, it actually gives them a hell of a lot more flexibility than you might otherwise uh, suspect based on what they were implying on how they would use it in the future. And the, so the, the second way to look at this, right, is that they absolutely intend to use this thing as a blunt instrument, but they don't necessarily want to telegraph that right mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. And maybe for the very reasons that, you know, Ben, that you're hinting at here, is what would, in Herb too, what would the Chinese reaction to that be? Because, I mean, to my mind, <clears throat> I think you put your finger on what's really interesting about this. It's not just about sanctioning governments. It's about going after corporations that receive this material. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as new. And one of the things they said in the briefing yesterday, to that point, that's very telling, as they said, people asked me, they said, voters asked, why do you need this tool when we already have sanctions regimes out there? And what they were essentially saying was, you know, if you unpack it, we want something that lets us go outside of the regimes that we already have to create a whole new set of tools in the toolkit. That was the phrase that they used. And, you know, they sanctioned North Korea through a regime of existing sanctions that were already there, including on some companies, I think, that were there too. This is something new, and they're, they're, they are deliberately opening up a new front that either they felt they couldn't before, or they felt that the regimes that were there were maybe too restrictive. Right, you know, and, I, and I, I, sorry, go ahead. I just find it fascinating the extent to which it's not just this administration, it was the previous administration too, but it seems to me this is just escalating and escalating the degree to which economic measures, economic sanctions in various forms are becoming the go-to tool um, not just on national security, but on a whole range of foreign policy objectives. And the idea that, you know, you can extend the range of sanctions, not just to governments and not just to specific government officials, but to private sector entities that engage with governments in ways you don't like, um, it's, it's a whole new field of foreign policy in a sense. And 
I'm curious, Ben, for the legal basis for this, um, if you can, because you said it was quite an assertion of executive authority. How do they justify this, and what does it mean? Well, so it, I mean, I, I don't actually think it's a it's an, a robust assertion of executive authority in in the sense of controversial executive authority. Um, the relevant statute is the International Economic Emergency Economic Powers Act which is the basis for a lot of sanctions activity that the United States engaged in engages in it's an incredibly robust statute it's been around a long time and its contours are pretty well defined when i said a robust assertion of executive authority i i i meant not executive authority as opposed to congressional or judicial authority but just you know this the this administration the previous administration and the la- the administration before that have all spent a great deal of time kind of hemming and hawing about the problem of cyber and sort of wringing their hands about it and this is not wringing their hands about it yeah. this is a assertion hey here are the people we have the power to go after the mechanism by which we have the power to go after them and the statutory basis to do it and we order that we're going to do this. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a very significant statement that if it is not followed up by concrete actions, will become the laughing stock of Beijing. And, and. Wow. You know. That's a great point. It, it's, you know, we have been slowly ramping up the, the, the gestures. And this is one where we say, okay, here we're going to hit you where it really hurts um, if you don't cut this out. And I, I think the really interesting question now is what, what happens if they then do not follow, that? Do, what kind of action do they need to follow up with this and what happens if they don't do you need, it? You need a first target. You need, you need to punish someone. Right. Well, you, you need to, you need to show First of all, you need to show, as you point out, what significant harm is, right? How significant an actor do you have to be and how significant a recipient, how significant does the damage have to have been to what sort of American corporation before we will simply seize what you've got in the United States? Um, secondly, how often are we going to do it? If it's going to be a very rare thing that's, you know, a, a kind of a negotiating tactic with the Chinese, um, I, you know, that may not send a real message. On the other hand, if we start really going after Chinese companies in the United States that are peddling uh, products that were stolen from the United States, I, I think that is perhaps a, a significant change in the dynamics of the cybersecurity conversation. I uh, Just as a last point on this, I asked yesterday in the press conference, I said, uh, how, how do you feel <clears throat> about the attribution problem. You're going to have to have some very specific information on whether or not, you know, that company X was the recipient or, or hacker group Y was behind it. Uh, and they said, yes, that's that you're right. And they said, and I think that our investments in attribution have paid off in recent years. And there's no doubt that it's gotten a lot better. Which Ooh, was, of course, exactly, which was sort of the message of the North Korea uh-huh. Sony hack was, yeah, we know it's you. And, you know, the, the actual, actually, I've written about this We know before. what you did last summer. Yeah, exactly, and we do oftentimes. And I, the, other, the second question I said was, you know, are you now worried that lots of companies are going to um, be coming to you and saying, well, help me, help me, I was a victim, sanction, 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 and you're worried you're going to get flooded by that? 
And they said, no, quite the opposite. We encourage companies to come to us. We hope that companies come to us. Well, the subtext of that is come to us and give us the forensic information right. so we can pin it back on who did this to you so we can possibly sanction them. So this is the, I, this could be the beginning of a whole new sort of strategy for, for fighting back. Or it could be a bluster right. that will not amount to very much and will look like a paper tiger. And the mm. Chinese won't respect that. Right. Mm. Right. Okay, um, tomorrow let's go into your wordplay. Uh, there were dueling readouts, as I understand it, of a high-level uh, phone call that, that occurred recently. Tell us something yeah, about that. Yeah, so I have here in front of me um, two readouts, one from uh, the government of Egypt and one from the U.S. government. Of the same phone call, uh, President Obama called Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi on Tuesday, and uh, the two governments seem to agree that the topics of the call included military aid from the U.S. to Egypt, human rights and democracy in Egypt, and regional issues. But that's about all that they agree on. And, and I thought it was, um, it was an interesting example of how uh, a policy that inevitably doesn't fully satisfy anyone um, can be spun. By, uh, by different actors for their own purposes. So basically what the president did in his call to CC on Tuesday is back down uh, and release a bunch of weapons that he had been holding back since October of 2013 to punish Egypt essentially for carrying out a military coup. Uh, and he had said that he would hold these weapon systems until the, until the Egyptians made credible progress toward democratic government which I think any objective measure would say that they have not. Um, but he went ahead and released the weapons anyway because the U.S. is getting more involved militarily again in the region in its anti-ISIS fight because the U.S. government was under a lot of pressure from allies and partners in the region to get back to business as usual with Egypt um, and because he realized that he really wasn't going to have any leverage over Sisi's uh, domestic governance. So he let the weapons go, but at the same time, and the White House readout makes this clear, he did some other things uh, to change the military aid program. He said that uh, Egypt will no longer be able to use what's called cash flow financing. That means it won't be able to buy items on credit, basically, against future year aid appropriations. We're cutting off your visa card. Yeah, cutting off the visa card. And that the aid now is going to be measured across four specific categories of goals, counterterrorism, border security, Sinai security, and maritime security. So if you add this all up, the message is, okay, we're going to give you these F-16s that we held back, but don't think you're going to be able to buy any more F-16s, buddy. So that was the White House readout. But... The uh, Egyptian government readout um, doesn't mention either the end of cash flow financing or the specific policy objectives going forward for U.S. military aid to Egypt. It just notes that President el-Sisi received a call from President Obama in which President Obama affirmed his country's interest in enhancing bilateral relations and told Sisi that he'd continue to give him $1.3 billion a year. <laughs> It it's great all talk. groovy. It was a great talk. We got what we wanted. Yeah. So um, I think this is evidence that even though the White House decided to swallow a bitter pill and put this issue behind it in the hopes of moving on, 
There are clearly some differences remaining between the two governments. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> some of what the president did this week may create new irritants. So, uh, what do you make of the timing of this announcement of the uh, of the release? You know, it's really interesting. I think some of the press coverage pointed to the Yemen operation. Yeah, you were and, tweeting on this. And the story, Iran yeah. talks, and you know, maybe that's why the White House decided to give this to the Egyptians now. Actually, I really don't think that has much to do with it. This this decision has been brewing in the White House for a long time. It's been debated bitterly inside the administration. And actually, you know, the on the one hand, on the other hand, that uh, that the White House finally announced seems to me to be a very messy internal compromise on U.S.-Egypt policy. Uh, and I think it just took them until now to decide to bite the bullet and do it. Has the friction between President Obama and Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel been a source of tension for our relationship with Egypt at all? Because whenever I was when I was in Israel last year, I mean, all I kept hearing from people in the Israeli government was like, "We love Sisi." Right? Yeah. Oh, they love Sisi. They do because um, Sisi is really anti-brotherhood and yeah. really anti-Hamas, and uh, and so are the Israelis, naturally enough. And so they've been really thrilled with uh, Sisi's crackdown on smuggling and um, and uh, arms and and uh, terrorist movement across the Sinai border and the Gaza border. But I think that um, there has clearly been uh, lobbying, not only from the Israelis, but from other American friends in the region here in Washington on Capitol Hill to get these weapons released to Egypt, saying, come on, lay off them already. They're our partners. We need them. You need them. Just, you know, let this thing go. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think they wore the Americans down. Wow. Okay, so let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I'm going to go first. My object actually is a film. I don't have it here, but we will put a uh, copy of the poster up on our website that I saw last I wanna night. I want to see the film. Can you put the film up? I wish. Well, I wish I could because seriously, you need to see this movie. This movie is called Wild Tales. Uh, it's an Argentinian movie. The original title is um, Relatos Salvajes. Uh, it was we nominee for Argentina. I think it was nominated for Best Foreign Film. This movie is seriously one of the darkest and most hilarious films I have seen in a very long time. I'm not, it's, it, it is six short films, essentially, all in one, one, two hour movie. Uh, there's nothing interlocking the plot lines. There's one common theme of apocalyptic revenge stories. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> um, and the first scene, I am not going to give away anything about it. But my jaw was hitting the floor with the way it was sort of felt like a ripped from the headlines moment, having very uncomfortable parallels to the German Wings air disaster. Um, in fact, they had to run a disclaimer on the film, which just came out in American theaters in the past week or so, saying this movie was made a long time ago. We're not trying to wow. make, you know, make light of what happened. So you can use your imagination. My goodness. Um, but this, I, I love this movie because it actually, it, it plays a lot with ideas of terrorism, of personal security, of bureaucracy. Um, there, there's this great sort of film of this guy whose car gets towed, and he's a demolition engineer, and he's just like trying to fight City Hall. And you can just imagine being a demolition engineer. What mm -hmm. happens with that? Um, there's a lot about like vigilante justice, <laughs> fighting the man. I mean, there's all these sort of like wonderful things. And the thing that I love about it, it's an Argentinian film, but it reminds me so much of uh, of, of great sort of. You know, dark Spanish comedies. The Spaniards, and I guess maybe the Argentinians both have this in common. They do this better than anyone of taking just incredibly dark, sad material that probably an American director would treat as very maudlin and very morose 
and making it absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it's sort of the Almodovar. Yeah, and in fact, I think he was even involved as a producer uh-huh. in this film, which would not surprise me at all. But it really is just wonderful. Wild Tales, great commentary on just like the little secure existences that we think we live right now and just really getting back at your enemies in Fabulous. the most delicious ways. Go see it. Um, Tamara, you go next. Okay, well, my object lesson for this week is the contents of my wallet. Uh, you can see here, <laughs> gentlemen. Look American. No, well, some of it is American. I, I went to uh, buy lunch in the Brookings cafeteria yesterday and tried to pull out exact change and realized that the majority of the coins in my wallet were not, in fact, U.S. currency. And astute uh, regular listeners of our podcast might have noticed that I've been traveling a little bit. And I realized yesterday when I was trying to find exact change just what this has done to my uh, oh my organization. So um, I have here a pile of money uh, that includes Israeli, Canadian, Emirati, as well as American, to be sure. There's currency. Some in there. there are a few pennies in there. You know, any euros? Not uh, none, none left. Actually, I managed to use them all up. I got out clean. Wow! Did uh, I take your Emirati coins at the Brookings cafeteria? <laughs> you know, we should work on that. You should. It's an international <laughs> body of sorts. Um, but you know, I was traveling with a friend last year who's former military and travels even more than I do, and he pulled out of his bag a pile of Ziplocs. Each Ziploc, like a sandwich bag, was labeled with the name of a country and a telephone number. And in each Ziploc was local currency and either a SIM card or like a cheap Nokia phone. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. And okay, that's that's, serious security. That is some serious travel expertise. Did he have any fake IDs on him or sort of like like? Bur- burner a go bag. burner identities. Well, he, he clearly had some burner phones, but you know, I saw his pile of baggies and I thought, I never want to get to that point. But looking at my wallet this week, I decided no, ba- it's time to stay home for a while, and that is what I'm going to do. The baggies are looking <laughs> awfully good. Nice. Um, all right, Ben, I think we saved the best object for last with, uh, with what you found. Well, my object lesson is. Uh, the Zero Dark 30th Birthday Cake from the mysterious baker of hard national security oh choices. God. So, um. This is Lawfare's official baker? Well, I, I don't know official because, uh, the identity of the individual remains uh, a secret. But, um, a number, a while back, uh, uh, a, a person who will remain anonymous uh, baked a cake that was uh, called the drone strike cake and involved in marzipan and frosting a, uh, a image, a scene, a, a panorama of a drone strike on a convoy um, and shot a picture of it and sent it to me and I stuck it up on Lawfare um, thinking that, you know, it was kind of fun, impish, tasteless humor. Um, and little did I know, a few months later, uh, when Rolling Stone magazine wanted to say something snarky about lawfare, they described the publication of the drone strike cake as, quote, notorious. Um, which, um, <laughs> Wait, I, the cake was notorious wish. or the publication of well, the cake Well, but it was, was a, it was a notorious example of lawfare's sort of like, 
right-wing bad taste kind of thing. Making light so, of it. Yeah. So now the uh, baker of the in drone... In case you weren't sure if it was bad taste, <laughs> right, in other words. Right, has struck again. <laughs> and uh, I have... We have stuck up on Lawfare uh, an image of the Abbottabad compound with two Black Hawk helicopters and in Marzipan, an anatomically reasonably correct Osama bin Laden with, sorry, anatomically correct bullet holes, oh, two bullet in the holes. chest, Bloody one in the Marzipan. forehead. Yeah. Bloody Marzipan. Um, it's really it, graphic. It, it is a graphic uh, image that um, I think is about the thing in the world that's made me happiest in the last uh, week or so. So I want to know, we need, and we need to know, who is this artist, this notorious baker? With such a with a, a lot of time on his or her hands, right? Yeah, and right? a proclivity for graphic representation. So of you know who? I presume you know who it is. Um, yeah. Well, you cannot send a cake through a secure drop. Um, uh, the the baker has to remain anonymous, um, at least for now for reasons related to the sensitivity of positions that he, she, or it may or may not occupy, um, is not comfortable uh, having uh, his or her name disclosed. So we just uh, call him or her the baker of hard national security choices. And I have uh, communicated with this person that uh, we expect on Lawfare's birthday, fifth birthday, September 1st, uh, 2015, we expect a cake of particular excellence. And, and will there be an unveiling with this cake? Of this? Uh, I, I hope by that point that the identity of the uh, baker will be able to be disclosed. A, a coming out party, oh, really? if you will. I hope so. I, 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 I hope so, yes. I'm not certain of that. Wow. This is all very mysterious, but... You're not going to give us any hint? I mean, I love marzipan, but I don't think I would want to have even a tiny taste of that bloody Bin Laden. Yeah. You can see it on Lawfare or on our show page. And you taking a bite of it notoriously. You should devour it notoriously. (laughs) All right, that brings us to the end of our show. Um, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can download more of our excellent podcasts at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow Rational Security on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, wherever you download our podcast, from iTunes, from Stitcher, from Instacast, I like Instacast personally, leave us a review, please. Let other people know what you think of the show. Let us know uh, what you think of it. It's actually the best way to spread the word and let others know about the podcast as well. Our, our podcast is edited by Jen Howell. The music is performed this week by the Marzipan Osama bin Laden. No. No. No, he's dead. <laughs> well, the Marzipan. Won. The Marzipan Lives. looks quite alive, but uh, Osama bin Laden did not perform our music. It was, as always, as you know, your very smart listeners performed by Sophia Yan. Uh, now it's ensconced still in Hong Kong, where she does not bake, as far as I know. Uh, I don't think she bakes. No. I don't think sure she bakes. She cooks. If Sophia Yan is making that cake, I'm going to be very disappointed. No, no, no. The the baker of hard national security choices, I want to make clear, is not Sophia Yan. Very good. All right. So we think I'm Shane Harris. On behalf of my friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 